about you, your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all of God's people. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the Lord, of, uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the, as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him on the right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything and every way. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this promise that, uh, that is, Paul gives us about you. Uh, we thank you that um, we're being prayed for by Paul in this section, that he's, he's talking about the church, he's talking about those in Ephesus, and in some magical way, he's talking about us. And so, God, we thank you for this. We thank you for this invitation to know you more. Uh, may we take that step uh, today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I have a different Bible today. Uh, Carrie, and my wife, is on a girl's trip, so I've had the boys, and things around my backpack have been taken out and missing because they thought it was funny. And so it's very small print, and it's going to take me a while to find things in there because it's not as, as bookmarked as my other one is. So here we go. If you want one of these, we have like 100 of them. So if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have the app, let me know. You can go home with one of these. Okay, so Paul starts this whole section with a therefore. And what Paul is getting at here is he wants us to respond to something. How many of you have ever gotten an invitation? Yes? Please, like, you got a birthday invitation one day, right? Uh, my, my kids got one the other day. Our neighbor came over and handed us an invitation to a birthday party. And I read it, and I was like, cool, taco truck, we're going. That might be where I got food poisoning. But we're... <sighs> We saw it, and then it said RSVP. Do we know what RSVP stands for? What? Yes, it's fancy because it's French. What's that mean, Mr. French guy? Please respond. Which sounds better? Respond, s'il vous plaît, or please respond? French sounds way better, right? And so RSVPs, as I learned when we were planning our wedding and any other party, are one of the most important things that you can ever do when it comes to a party planning. Why? You need to know who's going to be there. You need to know how much food to cook. You need to know how much wine to buy. You need, and if some people are coming over, probably more. And, and you need to know what's going on. So responding is important. So Paul is writing this as a response, saying, hey, look, this is everything that we'd happened. I need you to respond and so when you look at the very first word of this, where it says, for this reason, it's another way of saying, therefore, Paul's wanting us to respond to something. He wants us to know what had happened, and then he wants us to take a step. This is what, this is what our series is about. It's about taking the next step in your relationship with Jesus. What's your response? 
And Paul lays out a pretty great invitation to the people of Ephesus. If you were to go back into Ephesians chapter 1, go all the way back to the beginning, it would sound like this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, yada, 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 this is who I am, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now, Paul gets into this. Listen to what he says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him to be the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption, to sonship, through Jesus Christ, in accordance to his pleasure and will, to the praise of the glorious grace which he has freely given us, the one he loves. In him we have redemption through blood, the forgiveness of our sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things, that sounds great, in heaven and on earth. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything out to the conformity and the purpose of his will, in order that the who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to the redemption of those who are God's possession for praise and glory. <sighs> Amen. That's what we're responding to, okay? So Paul's writing this to a group of people who are hearing this invitation of everything that Jesus has done for them. Now, there's a couple things happening in the text here. Paul is writing this to the church in Ephesus, which is in Ephesus. They're a group of house churches. One thing you need to know about Ephesus is there's also a temple for Artemis there. And when you see these words that say, in him, in Christ, for Christ, through Christ, he's directly countering everything that Artemis did. And instead of saying, in Artemis, which is what that culture we're doing, he goes, no, 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 no. It's through Christ. Jesus did all this for you, not Artemis. And then he gets on to this thing called, now, since you know all of this, respond. There's also something that happens in Ephesus that brings light to this. Now, they're a house church. In Ephesus, during the time of Alexander the Great, we've ever heard about him? About 400 years before this, in that silent, weird period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, Alexander the Great took over much of the world, at least the known world at that, that time. And Alexander the Great's thought was that he wanted to make everything around or everything in the world Greek. This was called, does anyone know? Hellenization, okay? And the joke is, what is what the Hellenization is that, right? Bad joke? Good joke? <laughs> throw it away? Throw it away. Okay. <laughs> Hellenization was just this. Alexander thought so much about the Greek culture that he wanted everyone to be Greek. And so what he did was made, every, he didn't go into town and say, you are now Greek. You are now Greek. Instead, he showed them just how great Greek culture was. So he built these beautiful temples. He built these beautiful buildings. There's an amphitheater in Ephesus that at that time would fit 25,000 people. You can read about it in Acts 16. And there was a riot there that Paul started. 
and Paul wanted to go out and fight them, and they're like, no, 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 it's like 25,000 against one, you're not going to win. And so they snuck him out of town. And so Ephesus has this. Also, what the tragedy about Greek culture and making everything beautiful and perfect and uh, looking wonderful was that anything that wasn't perfect and wonderful and precise was cast to the side. So if something didn't fit, kick it out. And so there was this culture that ignored and ridiculed things that were not the standard and celebrated everything that they had standard. And so Alexander said, if we can just make Greece look so good and the Greek culture look amazing, everyone will want to be Greek. And then the whole world can be Greek and it would be a lot better. This was his goal. So the dark side of this, which things, when things didn't line up and when things weren't perfect, went into every fabric of society, including children that were born. And this is where it gets really dark and really sad. If there was a child that was born during this time that didn't meet a standard of perfection, if, if it wasn't wanted, if it was the wrong gender, uh, if there was some kind of uh, uh, deformity or handicap, they had legal right to do something called exposing the child, which was it doesn't fit the model of perfection in Greece. We are going to expose it, which they had legal authority to do it. They would put them in a basket or outside on this hill that was outside Ephesus, and the child would pass. It would die. And so Paul is writing this to a culture that was very familiar with this kind of practice. If something doesn't fit, kick it out. It's not worth it. The other side to this is when the babies were rejected, when they, came, when they come up, they would be put on the side of the hill. And if I say you wanted to uh, you wanted to have a child and you couldn't have one, you were allowed to go up to the side of the hill, pick one, and that one is yours. It's in your family. The bad part of that is if you wanted to have slaves and couldn't afford slaves, you could walk up to the hill and now you can raise your slave for free. Or you could fill your brothel with these kind of, if it was a girl, that was perfectly fine, just the wrong gender and the baby. You can do this, and that was acceptable. Socrates talks about this, and he says, we want to keep our, our land essentially pure, and so we need to get rid of the things that aren't. So what would happen is they would pick up these babies, raise them in Ephesus, and, and they, would, they would bring them into their family, and then there would be a house church, probably a little smaller than this, probably like this row here. And in, intermixed with this would be people who were picked up on the side of the hill, sitting in church next to somebody who picked them up. You see what's happening? And so Paul is writing this picture to a culture where anything harmed, blemished, would just discard it. And then he writes this beautiful image of what Jesus did and how Jesus makes everybody pure and right and equal. So imagine you were put on the side of the hill, the person you're sitting next to or probably across the room from because you had a different social order. 
you have now been called perfect. But everything else around you, about you, about who you are, about how you're made up, has been called defective. So with that background, listen to what Paul says. Praise be to the God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, you've never been blessed. Why? You are discarded. In your mind, you're trash. Paul comes and says, every spiritual blessing is yours. You have it. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined and adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Again, you've been put on the side of the hill. You've been picked up. And now, and you think that, that you were just chosen because someone needed to fill their slave count. And now you see this, in love, I was chosen. In love, I was brought into this family. You're starting to see this picture of Paul combating this cultural narrative that there's good and bad. And Paul's saying, look, Jesus has scooped you up and brought you in. In fact, these first one through seven uh, verses in, in the Greek is one huge long sentence. So if you're a grammar nut, and you want to read a run-on sentence, it's like a page long. Uh, there it is. Paul is searching for language just about the enormity of what Jesus has done. And he starts by using metaphors and imagery that can only come close to the subject. In love, he chose you. In love, he went and got you, brought you into this family. Paul's doing something here. Paul's worshiping. He's not making theological treaties here. I know he uses the word predestined twice. Let that go, Calvinist. Paul's not a Calvinist. That's not what he's getting at. Uh, yeah, there's one back there. Calvin wasn't around for 1,700 years, and Calvin probably didn't agree with what Calvin teaches now. And so, but Paul is saying here, look, you've been picked up. So imagine, again, I want you to get this. You live in a world where fate ruled your life. And imagine there's slaves in the room. People who have been left on the hillside to die as infants, abandoned by parents, raised as slaves, sitting in this church. And Paul starts leading with the idea that they have been chosen without defect. There's nothing wrong with them. When nothing in the world would ever tell them this good news, Paul says, in love you've been chosen. In love you've been sought out by Jesus. It's like Paul is telling them this. Our God, the God whom we worship, the God who we live and eat and breathe, the God who describes in here, goes up to the side of that mountain to the worst place that we can ever imagine, picks them up and says, you're perfect. You're perfect because of Christ. And in that identity, in that love, they are adopted into the family. God went to them specifically and said, come on in. Now we miss this because obviously we're in a different culture and we, we don't do exactly this, uh, but we miss this. And also we're numb to this kind of imagery, but the people hearing this that day this would be amazing news where they would hear nowhere else in their society. They are now adopted into the family of God. And this adopted thing is kind of interesting. It says in love, he predestined, not what he thinks back there, he predestined us for adoption to sonship in Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Don't let that word sonship 
screw you up here, okay? Adoption was different back then. When you adopted a child, you were hopefully finding an heir to your estate if you were to die. And the only people who could be heirs were sons. And so Paul is using this metaphor as we're given the heir. Now, Paul is talking to men and women, so it's sons and daughters in the, the larger context of this, but he's using something that they're familiar with in this section. You've been brought into the family. Of course, he means daughters, but he's addressing the a particular cultural practice. In Roman adoption, here, here's what happens in Roman adoption. There's a couple of standards. Roman adoption had to be public. So you had to say, listen, everyone, I'm adopting this person. They are now with me, public. Everybody knows it. There was paperwork, obviously. There was fathers who would go and choose the person they were adopting. So they would go and pick them. This is why Paul says, in love, he picked you. He's adopted you in. The child now, if they were old enough, had a choice. So if you are adolescent or if you're my kid's age, he's six and three, their respective heights, and, and, and you come to them and say, hey, do you want to be a part of my family? They had a choice to respond to say yes or no. Adoption contained a choice there. Now, if you want to adopt my child, just hold out a chocolate donut and they will follow you. It's pretty easy or whatever kind of toy you can find. The child had to adopt, uh, accept the invitation and there had to be a public witness. When you were adopted, here's what also happened. Say you were a slave and you were adopted in as a family, into the family, all of your debts, including the slave debt that you had, would be canceled. You were then given a new name. Who you were, this is where Paul gets the idea of this is what I once was and now I'm this. Everything about your past is gone. You're given a new family, you're given a new name, you're given a new identity, you're given a new status, you're given a new father and mother, and you're given a whole host of new responsibilities. Then, once you were adopted, you may never, ever, 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 ever again be disowned. You're stuck with that family. Now, there's historical evidence, and we see this throughout history. Uh, that's why there's historical evidence. That fathers would disown their own flesh and blood children quite regularly. I've disowned you, I've kicked you out, you are no longer a part, I'm going to use the adopted person because I can't disown them. So you can disown your flesh and blood, you cannot disown your own, or an adopted child. So Paul is using this imagery, knowing very well that there's people in the room who have been adopted into the family. And they're saying, you mean God's done the same thing for us? He's intentional using this to show us a picture of something. Your condition before Christ, and then your condition after Christ. We were slaves before Christ to sin and to the ruler of this world, and now through Christ, we're free. Before Christ, we're fearful of circumstances with no hope. After Christ, we do not have any fear anymore. Before Christ, low status, and then Paul says, now you have an inheritance, you have a status. You've been given a new name and a new robe and a new family, all your debts are canceled. In Roman adoption, you go from one family to another, new father, new father's choice, higher status, new identity, name, comfort, assurance, leave the old family, debts are gone, never be disowned. In Christ, transferred from one kingdom to the other, new family, the father invited you, the father picked you, 
you share in the family status, you have a community of believers around you, you have comfort and assurance knowing that you are with Christ, you no longer fear death, you leave your old family, you leave the old way of living, your debt to sin is canceled, and guess what? God will never disown you. Do you see this beauty of what Paul is saying? For this culture and for us, adoption is a perfect picture of what Jesus had done. Because people knew that they were babies outside of town that no one wanted, and people just threw them away. And they knew that place, they knew where it was, and they knew that some of those people had been adopted as slaves. And Paul says that Jesus comes running up the hill, picks up whoever he can find, and says, this one, this one's mine. And on the cross, he publicly displayed it and said, I'm going to take you all in. You're mine. This is the kind of God that we have. This is the kind of God that Paul is saying we need to respond to. Do you believe that you have a God like that? A God that loves you that much? A God who made the universe, put the stars in the place, formed the ocean, made the Grand Canyon, Yosemite, everything that you can think of that's beautiful. A God that set everything in motion. And he comes down and you're sitting on the side of the hill and goes, I want that one. I want Scott. I want Mason. I want Lynn. I want all of them. I'm picking them into my family. And I'm adopting them in on the basis of what? Love. This is the greatness that Paul is saying. Look how good and how beautiful our Jesus is. Look how good and beautiful our God is. And then he continues, in him we were chosen, being predestined according to the plan who has everything, who, who works everything in conformity with his purposes and will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In other words, the people are going to look at you and see God and go, whoa, look how great this God is. Now, I don't know if you're starving for good news, but there it is. That's some great news. You are God's possession. You are God's child. The Holy Spirit has come, and Paul says later, has sealed you, gifted you, brought you into the family, empowers you for everyday living, makes this yearning inside of you that calls out for more of Jesus, more of God, draws you in further and further and further because you are his child to the praise of God's glory. This is on the front page of the invitation to all of us. This is what God has done for you. Now, I don't know about your house, but when we get invitations to our house, everything lands on the refrigerator. There's a magnet. It's usually in the top right. This is also my calendar. I know I'm going to be at this person. So when we get this, Carrie is responsible for RSVPs because I don't. And so there, this is our thing. She's RSVP'd to this, and then the invitation goes on the fridge and it's there as a reminder that on this date we are going to that person's party we are going to this person's wedding and we said yes to this because we really really enjoy these people and we want to be with them we want to be with them to celebrate when you get an invitation from someone you like you're like i can't wait to respond i want to tell him yes and i can't wait the three weeks uh, or the four months, or whatever it is, uh, for that party to come. I can't wait. I'm so excited. Of course I'm going to respond. I'm going to write it in the calendar, and I might go get a new outfit the next day just to be ready for it, right? We get excited for this. 
God's invited you into his family. And my fear is that some of us go, yeah, I've been invited. Cool, I'm in. And that's the only response that we give. We see how beautiful it is. We see this glorious invitation, wonderful artwork that's on the front of it, the beauty of the cross, what Jesus has done for us. We're invited, yet we fail to respond. We just kind of go, oh, cool. I'm going to say yes to this, but I'm not going to do anything afterwards. I'm just going to cruise. I'm not going to explore the beauty of this invitation. I'm not going to get excited about this party. I'm not going to change anything about me. It's just going to sit there on the fridge. And I probably, I probably won't even pay any attention to it. This is why Paul continues this and says, for this reason, I want you to respond to it. You've been picked up on the side of the hill. Jesus has picked you up, brought you into the family. Now you, us, me, all have to respond. And let me tell you this, it's not a one-time response. It's a life of response that comes after that. Every day is a new day to respond. Every day is an opportunity for us to respond to this invitation that lays in front of us. So Paul catches on to this, and the rest of the letter kind of flushes out this way. This is how we respond. So in this next session, section, Paul gives us two response that comes in two phases. Okay, now here's the rub, or the catch, whatever you want to call it. Our response and our responding is not in order for us to gain more invitation. The invitation's been taken care of. Our responding is responding to the gift and the invitation that is freely there for us to get. We don't earn another invitation or another star on our badge or preferred seating at the party. Everything is yours, so you're not earning more. You're just responding to what's freely given to you. So here's phase one. For this reason, ever since I heard about you, the Lord Jesus Christ, and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now here it comes. So I keep asking, verse 17, that the, Lord of our, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope that he has called you to. There's a, there's a response here. Did you see it? He says, Paul, Paul's intentions is clear. I pray that you continue to know or get to know the person who sent this invitation to you so that you may know him better. That it's an ongoing relationship where you get to know the person deeper and deeper and deeper. Paul prays that our inner eyes, our instruments of understanding, that our spirits uh, would receive light in order to see what God is doing, in order that we may see God at work. Now here's the catch. It takes time. Sure, sometimes it's in a flash. The relationship begins in a flash, but at other times it's slow and methodical. And in order to gain understanding, in order to get to know somebody, it might take a while to get to know them. Maybe you have to come back a few times and check on it. Maybe you have to work on the relationship. How many of you met somebody new this morning during the awkward handshake time? Okay, it's okay to call them awkward handshake times because it is an awkward handshake time. Okay, are you best friends now? No, but you met them. You probably will forget their name. It's fine, we have grace. And you'll need to be reminded. 
But the third or fourth time meeting this person, you're going to know, oh, that's so-and-so. I met them on Sunday. And then the next time you talk, you're going to go, oh, they happen to like this local sports team. Me too. I don't. But they like it. You like it. You can talk about it. Your relationship builds. Did that take place today? Maybe a little bit. But the next time it goes further and deeper and deeper. And soon you have a friendship. And that friendship gets worked on. Maybe you say, hey, uh, uh, are you going to this event? Are you going to the Ballard uh, summer kickoff on the 26th? It's going to be awesome. And then you go there, and then you're playing bocce ball, and then you get to know something else about them. And it gets deeper and deeper. What caused it to go deeper and deeper? Time. Putting yourself in a place where you get to know them better. My wife uh, is out this weekend. Before she left, she got the boys Rubik's Cubes, which turned into... It started with, Daddy, look at this. And it was great because I can just look at it and go, yeah, I hate those things. <laughs> then she leaves. She gets on an airplane and goes to Texas with a friend to see the Chip and Joanna Gaines thing, whatever. And, and she's down there this week. And, and then, Daddy, look at this, turned into, Daddy, solve this. Which turned into, oh, crap. I've got to solve this. Which took about an hour and a half with the help of YouTube to solve it. And then I solved it, and I put it down, and I walked out of the room. One of the children, who remained nameless, comes up and goes, cool, messes it up, puts it down. Daddy, solve this. Are you kidding me? And then I solve it. The second time didn't take an hour and a half. The second time only took an hour. And then this morning, they come waltzing into my room, and it's messed up again. And now I'm at this phase where I got two lined up in the box. I got, for those of you who know Rubik's Cube, I'm getting close here. That one only took 30 minutes. Why is it getting easier? Spent time with it, right? So you've been invited to know God. You've been invited to be in this relationship with Jesus. And he's saying, look, I want to know you better. And so you need to respond to this. And so how do you respond? You put yourself in a situation where you're going to be able to know him better. What does that look like? This means you keep showing up. You can't get to know God better by just not getting to know him. It means this. It means discipline. It means you're going to have to take some time and set time apart to, I don't know, read your Bible? Two days a week? Three days a week? Four days a week? An hour a day? Fifteen minutes a day? Whatever take time to get to know him. We want to know what God says about us. We want to know everything about God and we wonder how we can do it. Well, he wrote you a book. This is how. This is one of the main reasons. And so you spend time in the word. Another way is you keep time in your prayer schedule. How can you get to know somebody if you never ever talk to them? And so that's why we have prayer. Now we have a prayer meeting every Wednesday night. It could be that. You're welcome to join us. We're in the Blue House which is called the Blue House because it's blue. We don't know what else to name it, and it's kind of stuck. But there's an invitation to prayer. You don't have to pray with us there. Prayer can happen anywhere outside of this place. It can happen on your drive home. But it's that time, intentional time, where you say, God, this is what's on my heart. And you talk. And lo and behold, you'll hear something back eventually. It'll happen. It means this. It means that you're, you're, Dylan talked about it with our small group gatherings. It means getting involved in a community with other people who are seeking Jesus together. It, and, and then sometimes small groups get weird. And if your small group hasn't gotten weird, you're the weird one. 
because every small group gets weird. It's just the nature of small groups. That's what happens. But you keep going. You keep putting yourself in the situation where you're going to grow in your faith. It means that you sign up and you commit and you go and say, this is how I'm going to get to know God further. This is me accepting the invitation to a relationship with him and I'm going to put myself in, in the place where I'm going to know him. Now, it doesn't mean that every time you open your Bible, you're going to be floored by something. Sometimes it will happen. Sometimes it won't. But you put yourself in the place where it can happen. It doesn't mean that every small group, you're going to be walking away going, oh, that was wonderful, because that won't happen either. You walk away and go, yeah, that was okay. But guess what? You had the opportunity to respond. You had the opportunity to get to know, some, to get to know Jesus a little better. That's phase one. Phase one is responding to expose yourself. It takes consistency plus time to build the relationship. Phase two is this, and it comes in the second half of verse 18. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance to his holy people and his incomparably great power to those who believe. In other words, when you see the impact of God scooping you up off the side of the hill, that will result in what? Hope. The understanding of this hope will result in a change in the way you live. The response that you have when you consistently put yourself in a place where you'll get to know God more is you will be instilled with hope. Hope is a response. To be hopeful in our society is an art. We hope because we have faith. In fact, the best definition I found of hope comes in this way. Hope is faith standing on its tiptoes, expecting. So my boys are expecting and hopeful that mom comes home tonight, and so am I. <laughs> so what do they do this morning? In expectant faith that mom said she'll be home tonight at 11 p.m., they, they will be asleep, and so will I. But they're standing at the window, and one of them's on his tiptoes looking for mom's car. That's hope. This is what Paul says is instilled with us. We will have hope. And it's an essential characteristic of Christians should be hope. Because we have the knowledge and understanding of what God's call on our lives is. Also, we have the knowledge and understanding just what faith in Christ gets us. In our culture where there is no hope, where, everyone, where the most majority of people will say death awaits us all, Crime, poverty, inflation, war, human stupidity, drug use, racism, terrorism, every other ism that you can ever think of is threatening to take over. Hope stands out like a sore thumb. To find a hopeful person is rare. Hope in Paul's day was just a rare, as rare as a commodity, as in ours. In his day, fate, determinism, despair, feeling stuck in your life and your situation. Once you're a slave, you're always a slave. Once you're this way, you're always this way. You have no hope. And so Paul comes screaming into town with this letter and says, we have hope that we don't have to stay this way. Life can be better. In view of God's work in Christ, what it means for them is we can have hope that death isn't the end, that fate doesn't rule, that hope builds a bridge back to God who says, I love you enough to pick you up off the hill, bring you in my family. Now I can have hope even in a life where despair rules. Hope is a challenging experience. 
It's not another world pie in the sky uh, kind of view. Hope is grounded in the reality that God is still moving and that Christ's work on the cross and the resurrection and the, and the spirit that indwells you in our lives changes every single thing about you and the course of history is shaped because of it. In hope, it means that we have, uh, we have to change sometimes because we hope we have to change the way we see things. Instead of living our present lives through the fogged lenses of despair uh, and uncertainty, hope allows us to view our life through the lens of a future promise that has already been solidified in Christ. In Christ, you have a future, and that future can happen today. I was with a group the other week, and we talked about this idea of living into your future self now, and there's a big, long word for it called uh, eschatological realism, which is fun, but it's the idea that this has been made the promise for you, and that promise is available to you today. And the hope that we have is we live into that future promise in the middle of the darkest despair. And so this is what Paul's saying. You're surrounded by despair? Think about the hope that you have in Christ. And that hope acts like a lifeline where you pull the hope back into your reality. And what that does is you adjust your eyes. And what we'll, pre what we'll do is we'll live in presently to the future that God has for us knowing where we are going, know, knowing what Jesus has done for you, the extent to which he sacrificed for you, and pulling those realities back, those crystal clear realities, back into our present sense of ambiguity. Our world is in despair, and our response, the second response, is to have hope. Our world says, define yourself by your ailments. Define yourself by everything bad that's happened to you. Paul says, no, 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 no don't do that. That's not who you are. You define yourself by the hope you have in Christ. Hope invites you to the understanding that because of Christ and the shadow of the empty grave, despair is gone and the situation you are living in now will not always be that way. And we look forward in hope, in the tiptoed anticipation of the good that might happen because of Jesus. Hope is the knowledge and knowing that in the darkest place, in the darkest night, the sun is about to crack through and there will be dawn. How many of you get up before sunrise? It's really difficult right now. Okay, a few of us, we're the, we're, the, we're the sane ones. The day's half over by the time the rest of you wake up. It's cool. But there's this, uh, uh, there's this my dad used to say that and it made me feel real bad. I hopefully it did the same to you. But there's this, uh, there's this lull between sunrise and middle of the night, which is relative for a lot of people, where it is the darkest and it is the coldest time of night. But there's hope. Why? Because there's this annoying bird, and it takes a lot for me to call birds annoying. There's this annoying songbird. It's a robin, and it lives in the tree just outside my window. He starts chirping. He or she, I can't tell. They start chirping uh, just about 30 minutes before sunrise. And what does that tell me? Hope's coming. The sun's about to break through. The night's almost over. This dark night when it's cold and, and for some reason there's still frost on my grass when it's April, uh, the sun's going to come up and I can have hope in that. This is what Paul's trying to get you to do. Put yourself in a place where you can respond to God's mercy and his selection of you daily and remember to hope. That's the invitation to us. And so when you walked in this morning, 
you were given one of these red envelopes, which is awesome. How many of you opened it? Or did you wait? Okay, those of you who didn't raise their hand, take it out. Let's open it up. <coughs> Excuse me. You open it up. It's an invitation. Our comms team, led by this guy down here, who is multi-talented every, in every way, put these together. If you didn't get one, they're right out there. And what's this look like? Invitation. It's an invitation. Oh, my goodness. It's an invitation for you. Just like God has invited you to be a part of his family. He's brought you in. He's invited you to be a part of this. You, us, me, we all are asked to respond. And so in your invitation, you have this. Put this on your fridge. This is going to be a fun day at the zoo. We're going to do church at the zoo. Uh, some of you might get locked up there because you're animals, right? That was really bad. Boo. But this is the invitation. The invitation to wholeness, the invitation to discipleship, fancy words for saying invitation to walk with Jesus, to get to know him better. On the back of this is, is what we're going to be talking about for the next eight weeks or so. And then there's this card here that this is your response. The invitation to know Christ is sitting in front of you. You've, we've read through it. We've seen what Jesus does. We've seen what he's done for you. You were on the side of the hill. He's picked you up. And, and now your life is lived in response. And there's something to fill out here. Now this fancy one's for you. Fill it out. Question to consider. How are you going to get to know Jesus better after today? What's something that you can do to respond to? In the bottom... This is your next step. I want to know more about what God tells me to, what God tells me about. Well, your next step might be 15 minutes a day in the Bible. Read a chapter. I want to learn how God talks to me. Talk to him. So your next step is prayer. I want to know that I'm not alone in this world where I've been isolated for so long. So I want to know that. What's your next step? I need to surround myself with a community of other believers that will encourage me in my faith who are going through the same thing that I'm going through. So my next is some kind of community group, and we have an assortment of them that meet. I want to get to know that. That's your response. And then you put this in a place where you're going to remember that you have responded. Now this one, this blank one, is for you to, to do whatever you've written on this copy it on this. Do we need pens? We got pens? Okay. Dylan, can you go grab some pens? Some people might need some pens. On this one, this one is something where you're going to say, I'm going to respond to you today, God, and I'm going to tell you what I put on this card, and then I'm going to bring this forward either to the communion table or up here as a way of publicly saying, I'm responding to the grace that God has given me. And I'm going to respond to this in this way. Make sense? The, the invitation's been issued to each and every one of you. Your response might be this. I have no idea who this Jesus is. I want to know him. I want to meet him. Maybe for the first time. I want to hope again. So I'm going, to, I'm going to look and see what God has done for me, what God will do. So I want to learn how to hope again. Maybe it's a situation where you think it's dire that nothing good could ever happen from this. 
To have hope means that, God, I'm trusting you with this awful situation that I'm going through. And in this awful situation, I'm going to look with tiptoed anticipation of what you're going to do through this. That joy will come eventually in the morning, and right now you're stuck in the darkest of nights. Maybe that's your response. But the key thing that we need to do here is we need to respond. Don't let the invitation wait there hanging. Don't let it sit on your fridge and collect dust and eventually get thrown away with everything else. We need to have some sort of response, and the invitation has been issued to you. RSVP now. Because that's what we're supposed to do. This is what Paul wants us to do. For the next eight weeks, we're going to be talking about the various ways that we can respond. New ways of seeing yourself, new ways of relationships, new ways of being formed, new ways of serving, new ways of justice, new ways to experience generosity. All of this is the invitation for you today. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have some time for you to reflect. If you need an ink pen, there's a whole jar of them over there. And then when you're done, this is the challenge, and some of us will be very uncomfortable because we don't do this a lot. Bring it forward. And if you want to come here and put it around here, put it on the ground, just put it there. And if there is something where you want to spend some time in prayer, by all means, pray up here. It's called the altar, and this is an altar call, which is something that doesn't happen a lot lately. If you want to, you can do the same thing over there with communion. You can take this, respond, and then say, God, this is what I'm going to respond. I'm telling you I'm going to respond. And the great thing about RSVPs is once you say you're going to be there, you better be there. It's, it's, it's on you then after that. This is how I'm going to respond today. So would you pray with me and then we'll have time for this. Father, we thank you for this invitation that you've given us. This invitation to know you better, to know the God who has picked us up off the side of the hill to know the God that saw us exposed to the elements, exposed to death. And you come up running up the hill like you can't wait and you pick us up and you say, you're mine. And you've adopted us into your family and now we have the choice to say, I'm in, I want this. I want this inheritance. I want to be a part of this. I want the new family. I want to hope again. So Lord, may your spirit be working here now as it has been all morning. For us to learn or, or think of the ways in which we can respond to you. To hear your invitation. To hear your call. To learn about your love that never drops us, that never disowns us, and gives us something to look forward to. And if you don't know Jesus today, I would love to introduce him to you. If you don't know his love, if you don't know his hope, 
we would love to pray with you and for you in this moment. So God, may we respond to your call. May we RSVP to your invitation this morning. There's going to be some time of music and silence. Pray, write it. When you're ready, bring it forward. Communion and whatever you feel after that. If you would like prayer, just linger. We'll find you. We'll pray for you.